Good morning, once again. It is really good to see you here this morning, and it's even better to join you with you, giving glory to our Redeemer. Would you open up to Matthew chapter 12 if you have a Bible with you, or if you want to open up your phone and find Matthew chapter 12? And if you are able, would you stand as I read God's Word? I will be reading from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 45. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he, Jesus, answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with, with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. The grass fades but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, the grass fades and the flower withers, but your word endures forever. I ask, Lord, that these strong words from Jesus would land in soft hearts. We know that Soft preaching creates hard hearts and harder preaching when it's done in mercy and love as Jesus is doing here. It creates soft hearts to those who are hungering for truth. Would you find a room full of people hungering for truth? Lord, would you confront us? Would you, as Jesus does in this text, argue with us for our good out of your mercy? Lord, please don't let us just mail it in, sit on a seat, check the box. But Lord, would we, would we have a fresh sense that the Jesus who walked up and down the pews of the churches of Revelation is walking in our midst right now. And we do not want this lampstand to be put up, but we want you to blow on this light so that we could be all that you would want us to be for the good of our families, for the good of our church, and for the good of our community. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can grab a seat. If you did not know any better, you might surmise that I have been riding a hobby horse of just again and again preaching on people who are around the truth but never really come to embrace him who is the truth. But of course, all I've been doing is preaching sequentially through the Gospel of Matthew. But you might say, to some extent, Jesus has been riding the hobby horse of preaching about people who are around the truth but don't truly embrace it. Remember his words to Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, the Pharisees, and others. As I just prayed God would do, Jesus was arguing with them for their good out of his mercy. And I just wonder if the Lord wants to do that with anybody here this morning. 
He wants to argue with you for your good out of his mercy. And the question is, will you have ears to hear him? Will you be the authority or will you gladly submit to his authority? So before we get into the text, I want to ask you a few questions, honest questions. Do you ever wish that you had more proof, more evidence, more validation, more confirmation, more ratification? You get the idea. More evidence for what you say you believe as a Christian? Anybody ever wish that? Or if you're exploring what it means to follow Jesus, you'd wish there was just more evidence that could be presented to you. Do you ever think, well, the reason I'm a Christian is because I was raised in a Christian home, and reality is, I think if I was raised in a Muslim home, I'd probably be Muslim. Or the only reason I'm considering Christianity is because, well, my parents are Christian. In other words, have you reduced this idea of becoming a Christian to geographic location rather than supernatural conversion? Now, have you ever thought any of those questions? Raise your hand if you have. Most of us have. Maybe you are. And, and, And here's the reality. The truth is not afraid of questions, right? The truth actually invites questions. The truth embraces questions because it's in those places truth can beautifully put herself, metaphorically speaking, on display. But what we're going to see this morning is this, that there can be, not always, but there can be a dark underbelly to such questions. Because a lot of times, these questions aren't about diving more into the truth that God has chosen to reveal. Asking questions about the truth that he's revealed, actually a lot of times it's about demanding personalized truth on our terms. And Jesus says, as I just read, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Give me more evidence, Lord, out of an evil and adulterous heart. Here's another question before we jump in. Do you ever, if, then God, if you Heal my cancer. If you handle my problems, if you fix my marriage, just if, then, fill in the blank, then then I actually believe that you're real. Then I'll actually believe that you're good and for me, and then I will trust you. Has anyone ever, if, then, God? Can you see how that's kind of seeking a sign? Personalized revelation to you? Now, the, the sinner, and I'm talking about all of us, the way we're born, the sinner likes to think that with all of his question asking, with all of her question asking, he or she is simply doing it because I just need a little bit more evidence before I finally collapse on the truth. And that may be the case sometimes. But could it be, and in fact it is according to Jesus, a lot of times our question asking is not a reflection of a reasonable mind just seeking truth but actually of an evil heart running from truth. You'll see this this morning as I preach to you from this text on the sign of Jonah. You all with me? This text, this powerful story begins with an insincere question in verse 38. Before I read it, context. Last week, Jesus encountered a demon-possessed man. Do you remember that? And he delivers this man from demon possession, so much so that a man who was mute can now speak, and a man who was blind can now see. What do the Pharisees say about this demon-possessed man being delivered? What do they say? Jesus did it by the power of Satan. Jesus then mows them down. We walked through this last week. He showed them that they were being illogical, inconsistent, knowingly rejecting him, ironically the ones actually working for Satan, facing grave danger at the day when every word will be brought to the judgment seat. He was arguing with them, was he not, for their good out of his mercy. Well, what do they say? Do they say, thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to speak the truth into our lives? Do they say that? Do they do it in about face? Do they retack their sails? Do they do a course correction? Decidedly not. That brings us to verse 38. This is how they responded. 
to the sign that they just saw. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, and by the way, I say insincere question, a teacher is one who they believe had authority. They don't really believe, they don't want to submit to his authority. It's an insincere question, right? Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. That's what they're asking. And they will do that quite repetitively all through the Gospels. In Matthew 16, after he gives the sign of feeding 4,000 people plus women and children, guess what happens? They say, hey, that was great, but can you show us a sign from heaven? This is crazy. John chapter 11, okay, we're just, you, got, you got to hold on to this. In John chapter 11, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees gather the council together. This is what they say. They say, what are we to do? For this man, Jesus performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, many will believe in him. Do you, you get that? They're actually acknowledging he's doing all these signs, but they don't give a rip about what it says about him. They just don't want people to follow him. It's an insincere question. And somebody once said, you can't help a blind man who just does not want to see. So, have you ever considered the possibility that all your question asking might not be the reflection of a reasonable mind pursuing truth, but of an evil heart running from truth? In other words, you may actually not have an open mind like you say you do with all your question asking. It might actually reflect that you have a closed heart. So why do you ask the questions that you ask? That's something for us to chew on. An insincere question followed by the ultimate sign. That's his answer. Look at verse 39. He answered them, and he says, an evil and adulterous generation. I don't think that's too good, do you? We'll come back to that, but did I not say several times already there can be a dark underbelly to some of our questions, right? Here he, calls the, he says to these people, asking him for more evidence, for a sign, you're an evil and you're an, an adulterous generation. This is what he says. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what do you think that's all about? What does he mean, the sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, in the Old Testament, there's two kinds of prophecies about Jesus. The first kind of prophecy we would categorize in, 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 in the area of being a verbal prophecy, a verbal, verbally predictive prophecy. It just says it straight out. Isaiah 7, 14, he'll be born of a virgin, right? Or Micah 5, 2, that he would be born not just in Bethlehem, but Bethlehem of Ephrathah, a remarkable prophecy. So you have verbally predictive prophecies, but you also have pictorially depictive prophecies. We call that typology. And here is the picture that he is painting right here. Next verse. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, i, I got to stop here just for a second and address the person who gets hung up on the three days and three nights thing, okay? Because you might say, wait a second. I'm reading right here, Jesus was in the ground, it says three days and three nights, but that's not really how it was. What time was he crucified on Friday? They say the ninth hour in Scripture, which would have been about 3 p.m. our time. So there's only nine hours left in the day, right? And let's say they really got his body into the ground quickly, say by uh, four o'clock, that's only eight hours a day. That's one-third of a day right there, one-third, Right? And I'll concede, yes, he was in the ground all day, all night, Saturday. So that's 24 hours. But we also know that he rose early Sunday morning, right? So I don't know what time, eight, was it 8 a.m.? No, that's not too early. For some of you it is, but it's really not. 6 a.m., okay. So how can you say three days and three nights when he was at best in the ground 1.678 days? You ever wonder that? You ever read that and say, hey, I don't get it? Because people do, and they use it as a reason not to believe. Well, don't be that guy. That is a Western imposition on a, on a time and a text when people didn't have wristwatches, right? And there weren't clock towers in every city. 
It is true that often in Scripture, a part of a day, y'all with me on this? I don't want to get tired, but I, I do want to address this. A part of a day is counted as a whole day. And if it wouldn't bore you to death, I would trace down five references in Holy Scripture when a part of a day is called a whole day. And why is that done? Because in antiquity, in days of old, in ancient Jewish culture, it went down like this. Part of a day would be, in fact, counted as a whole day. You can read about this in the Talmud. And so when it says Jesus will be in the ground three days and three nights, what, 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 what the author, the ultimate author, the Holy Spirit, God himself is telling us is Jesus was really put in the ground spread over a real three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He really was buried, and it really spanned three days. And, and actually, we do kind of talk like that, come to think of it, and as I was preparing this, let me give you an illustration. Let's say Thursday night, we're hanging out. It's 5 p.m. exactly. And you ask me what I'm doing this weekend, and I say, well, thank you for asking. In two days, I'm actually going on vacation with my family. Would you say then to me, Oh, does that mean since it's 5 p.m. Thursday, you're going to be leaving 5 p.m. Saturday? And if you did, I would think you were kind of weird, but then I would correct you and say, well, no, actually, we're probably going to leave at 9 a.m. Well, then would you say, well, you just lied to me. You said two days, and technically, that's one and two-thirds days. Would you do that? So we even speak like that. Do you, you feel me? That's what he's getting at here. Now, I wanted to deal with that so I can get with the bigger point. The big, here, here's the... Here's the pictorial uh, imagery. Here's the typology. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, alive, <laughs> before he was spit up on earth, Jesus says, after I am crucified and, they, I'm, and, I, and I die, I'm going to be put into the ground. I'm going to be put in the tomb before I step out of it alive just like Jonah was spit up onto the shore of the coastline. And, and by the way here, Jesus Christ is affirming the historicity of Jonah, right? He's affirming the marquee event of the book of Jonah, that he was in fact swallowed by a whale or a great fish. But here, here, here's, here's the point. Jesus is saying, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. The sign is me being raised from the dead, pictured, previewed by Jonah. One commentator said this, Sean O'Donnell said, in Jesus' life and ministry, God gave bam, 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 one proof after another. We've seen all these signs already, haven't we? But in his death and resurrection, he pulls out all the stops. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the sign, period, exclamation point, one sign, you can take it or you can leave it, but it is God's sign. That's it. That's it. The sign, you, you, need, you need more evidence to believe. The evidence is Jesus Christ rose from the dead, to which somebody here is saying, how do I know that really happened, right? You just want me to believe it because the Bible says so, right? Yeah, but, but let me go somewhere with this. I think it was O'Donnell, may have been another commentator. They said, so often we're put on our heels when people ask us, well, how do you know, prove that he rose from the dead? But actually, the burden is not on us to prove that he rose from the dead. The burden is on people who don't believe to prove that he did not rise from the dead. You should think about that. And, and, and whoever, I think it was O'Donnell, he asked a question. I'm going to give you the question that he asked, and I'm going to give you three more. Here's, here's four questions you should ask somebody if they say, uh, I don't believe that he rose from the dead. Ask him four questions, okay? Question number one. You tell me then, where's his body? Where, where's his body? Tell me. Well, I wasn't there. I know, you're not 2,000 years old. But I tell you this. This is putting it mildly. This is understating the point. There were two massive groups of people around, actually orchestrated the death of Jesus, who would have been massively uh, concerned about finding his body to show that he did not really rise from the dead. Who am I talking about? Talking about the Romans, right? And the, and, and the Jews. They, listen, they would have had a massively vested interest in making sure they could show his body off, right? Uh, if you walk through the story, 
there was a detachment of soldiers put around his tomb. I don't know, a platoon. Do you know that is impossible for a group of people to get through a platoon of soldiers and roll away a tombstone and take the body out and roll it back and get out without being detected? It's impossible. But let me just grant that that happened, hypothetically speaking. What did they do with the body then? Did they put his body on a jet and, 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 and uh, fly him to Brazil where he could be uh, secretly buried so no one could find the body? Did that happen? And you got to remember, Palestine was a highly populated area. There were Roman garrisons everywhere. You better believe the Romans were looking like crazy for the body of Jesus because they, they feared what his resurrection could mean. And you better believe with all those Jewish precincts around, they would have combed the area likewise to show that Jesus of Nazareth wasn't God, but just a man. But they never found his body. Why? Because he's alive, there was no body to find except the resurrected Christ, which, by the way, I didn't even go this way. There were over 500 witnesses who saw him, how? Alive. So you need to answer the question, where's the body? The second question you need to answer is, why would the disciples, all the disciples to a man, and some other early believers as well, why would they all die brutally? The only one that didn't die brutally, he did die as a martyr with John, but they say he was also boiled in oil. I don't don't know. But all of them died brutally as martyrs. Why would they do that if they knew that was a lie? Now listen, one or two diehards might do that, right? We're just so married to this principle, even though it's a lie, we'll still die. But, But everybody, everybody, all of the disciples would die martyrs for a lie? Even the most strident atheists recognize that's an impossibility just with human psyche. And so they, this is what they say to explain that, because they all agree, history shows they all died martyrs. They'll say they all experienced a, 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 a mass hallucination that they saw Jesus appear alive as hallucination. That's pretty clever, isn't it? That's, a, that's really clever. But obviously that didn't happen. Do you know that the disciples, they did not look at their watches and say, well, he's coming back in three days and three nights, spread out over three days. They didn't say that. What did, what did the disciples do? They headed for the hills, baby. They were done with this Jesus thing. It was over for them, despairing. We, we were following a lie. I mean, you just read the accounts. And yet they did an absolute about face and gave their lives proclaiming Jesus Christ What made the difference? He rose from the dead, and they saw him themselves. So you have to answer that question. You have to answer this question. Why did Christianity spread so rapidly, faster than than any other faith ever? It's just true. Why? First, among the Jewish populace. These were people who were not exactly friendly with the idea that Yahweh would ever be a man. That was blasphemy. Unless, of course, it was actually true. How did they come to believe that? Because what? Jesus rose from the dead. How do you explain the fact that Christianity, even many, many centuries ago, in pre-modern transportation times, spread to the ends of the earth? How do you explain that? You explain that because Jesus is alive, and he's good on his promise when he said, I will build my, he said, I will build. My church in the gates will not prevail against it. So answer that question. One more question to answer. Why is Christianity a regional religion, not a global? One, let, me, let me, I said that wrong. Why is Christianity decidedly not a regional religion, but a global faith? Answer that. Answer that. See, the reality is every other religion, and I say this to you without exception, is centered either on a, religion, on, a, on, a, on a region, a geographic region, and or an ethnicity, a group of, of people who, care, who, who share common markers. Of course, in every religion, you have people outside that 
regional boundary or ethnic boundary who will convert into that system, but still, they're predominantly one thing. So, when I say Islam, what region of the world do you first and foremost think of? Middle East. When I say Hinduism, what do you think of? India in, in, in related nations. When I say Judaism, here not region, but ethnicity, what ethnicity do you think of? Jewish. Now, I know there's a lot of debate about who are the true Jews, but that even is centered around an ethnicity, right? When I say Mormonism, what do you think of? Utah, yeah. The Utes, right? You think of white folks, right? Does that not illustrate that all those religions are pri primarily centered on a region and or ethnicity? Not Christianity. Not Christianity. Do you know that in every continent there are major movements of Christian people? People have said stupid things. It's just not supported by history. It's grossly ignorant of history to say, well, like Christianity is a white man's religion. This is not the case. You just need to read history. Yes. There are still people groups that need to be reached, hence the Great Commission, but the undeniable fact is there are major populations of Christian across every continent. Why? Because Jesus is alive. And he said, and they're singing it right now, can you hear it in heaven? Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every nation and tribe and language and people. So will you answer that for me? Now, Jesus is alive. Somebody says, well, okay, thanks for that nice little four-part diatribe. Um, but I didn't see him come back to life. Okay, since you're cutting it straight, I'm going to cut it straight. You're a hypocrite. You are, uh, let me be nicer. I'm, I'm speaking from the pulpit right here. You're inconsistent. You are inconsistently buying into what is called empiricism. Empiricism came out of the Enlightenment, 17th century, 18th, uh, David Hume, John Locke, people like that, philosophers. And they said that the only way we attain knowledge is through empirical evidence. I got to see it. I got to feel it. I got to experience it. Then I'll know it's true. But I say you're a hypocrite if you're using that as a reason to not believe Jesus rose from the dead, because people embrace all kinds of knowledge, do they not, without ever having seen it or felt it or experienced it. Do you believe that American slavery happened? Do you? Do you believe that George Washington was the first president? Well, how? You, you weren't there. You haven't experienced it. Do you get where I'm going with this? We believe all kinds of things on the basis of good historical evidence, but we are unwilling to embrace the overwhelming evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In a way, that's like a Holocaust denier, denying what history bears clear truth to. So maybe, maybe, maybe the problem is not the evidence out there, but the evil in here. First of all, an insincere question. Second of all, an overwhelming sign, the sign of Jonah. And then third of all, how you should respond is what he's teaching the Pharisees. Here, here's the picture right here, and then we'll get into it for this third point. At the end of the age, a barbaric group of men who came to God called the Assyrians. They're going, to come to, they're going to come, as it were, to the courtroom. And then out of another door is going to come another witness, a Gentile, pagan, Ethiopian woman, the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, who had far more light than you've even heard in the last 35 minutes being here. And they will say, as you are condemned, what? In the world, what are you thinking? Look at this. Verse 30, verse 40. 
The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You know the story. Jonah, go, go preach to the Ninevites. Jonah says, I've been waiting to the preach to that people group. I just love them so much. Now, what does Jonah do? He says, oh, he's out. And then, you know, the fish, they throw him in the water, and the fish swallows him, and he spit up on that land. Now, these Ninevites, how many miracles did they see? How many miracles? How many signs? Zero. Unless they were in a little village where he was spit up on the land. Maybe they saw that, like, oh, that's weird. But they didn't see signs. They heard an eight-word sermon. And this sermon doesn't say anything about what we champion grace. Yet, 40 days, he begrudgingly walks through the city, and this city's going down, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Like, eight... Eight-word sermon by a prophet who doesn't even want to preach to them. What do they do? They say, now, now what, do you mean by, what do you mean by 40 days? Can you explain that? Oh, what do you mean by overthrown? And why did you use the word yet? What do they do? What do they do? They repent. They get right with God. Do you know up to this point in Matthew, you've heard 4,604 words from Jesus? And there's a whole lot more coming. You've heard words like the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the... And nobody, what's interesting is people don't say, I don't think the Beatitudes are real, do they? You know, have you ever heard somebody say, I don't think the Beatitudes are real? But the same one who spoke the Beatitudes told us that he is the living God. That he would be crucified as an atoning sacrifice for our sins and that he would rise again on the third day. And the reality is, most of us have heard far more than 4,604 words. So much truth. And these Ninevites are going to rise at your judgment and say, you are a fool. Don't you think? They're going to rise to the judgment. They repented it's so much less light. You've had so much light. You say, you're, you're, you're a fool. That's what they're going to say. Verse 42. The, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from where? The ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What's going on? This is a reference to 1 Kings 10 when the queen of the south or queen of Sheba, she's called there. She is 12,888 miles in Addis, Ethiopia, away from Solomon and Jerusalem and all that. She hears about the wisdom of Solomon that is so alluring to her, she travels again, no jets in that age, no roads that we would think of, she travels nearly 1,300 miles to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She brings treasures, and at the end of that chapter, she actually uh, confesses that Solomon's God is the living God of the universe. And she's going to say, what in the world were you thinking about? You spurned the wisdom of one far greater than Solomon? And in fact, he came to you to share that wisdom himself? He came from heaven to earth? And you said, no, I need more evidence. What were you thinking? Here's the cold, hard reality. No amount of data, no amount of information will be enough for the person who wants to shut their eyes to the truth. All the while, while veiling the rejection of the truth under the guise of just needing a few more questions answered. James Montgomery, um, a boy, said something like this. He said, to such people, you could walk out in, 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 in night in the dark sky, say at 10 p.m. at night, look out into the, into the black sky. You could see John 3.16 written out in stars. And you would say, oh, wow, what an um, what astronomical coincidence, right? There would be no sign that would do it for you. You get the point? Jesus says to everyone here, I have done everything for you to believe. I've done everything. I've done it and I've given you the proof I've done it. I lived a perfect life for you because I love you. 
I died the death that you should die. I died in your place, suffering the righteous judgment of, of God that you deserve. I took that hit on the cross. I was buried, and I'm now alive. And my being alive proves everything I said is true. You want a sign? I've given you a sign. It's me. I'm the sign. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the sign. I gave you me. So again, maybe the issue is not the absence of, pres- the absence of evidence out there, but the presence of evil in here, the very thing Jesus came to save you from. And maybe, maybe you know this. Maybe that you know that to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus, you need to repent. You need to repent. There's a lot of people who've confessed Jesus but never really repented. And, and you haven't really connected with him. You're not really in him. To repent means you shape your whole life around him. Like he's the Lord. He's the master. I surrender everything to him. Now, obviously, we do it increasingly, but our heart posture is that orientation. In other words, you can't come to Jesus saying, I'm just going to tweak a few things. That's just the Reformation he's going to talk about in the last section. You actually come and you turn your life over to him. And you know why people don't want to do that in, in, in the light of a sea of evidence? Going back to what he said, because... In ourselves, we are an evil and adulterous generation, right? Evil and we're adulterous. And that's hearkening back to the days of Israel when they went after all these other gods. You remember that? And God put them in exile for that. They went after all these other gods of wood and stone, the gods of Assyria, the gods of all these other places. And, and for you... It may not be making a God of wood or stone, probably not, and it may not even be a God of another religion. It might just be making a God out of the one that you see in the mirror every day. What do you mean? It might be this. Instead of embracing the progressive revelation of God given to you, you are so arrogantly demanding God give you his own personalized revelation for you to believe. You're holding God to a threshold for believing of your own terms instead of receiving what he has revealed out of his saving love. You know what that's called? Listen, stay with me, please, stay with me. This is called self-trust, isn't it? Self-trust, I know better, I know better, I know better. What's another form of self, what else could you call self-trust? The very thing the Pharisees were guilty of, self-righteousness. So as you point your finger at all these people that are, you say are self-righteous, could you have a little bit of Pharisee in you as well? Because you're trusting yourself. Jesus, right now, listen, I know these are strong words. I, I get it. But these are Jesus' words, right? And he's arguing with you out of what? Out of his mercy for your For your good, that's what he's doing. And what's really cool is some of these Pharisees actually repented. I don't know if they were there or not. The text doesn't tell us. But Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus in faith, buried it before he was raised. Nicodemus came to him at night, and he he came to the truth. There were Pharisees who turned to Christ. Why don't you turn to Christ right now? Why don't you do that? Won't you trust him? What are you waiting for? Trust him. Turn to him. Ask him to save you. Maybe, on the other hand, you're somebody who's kind of been flirting with Christianity. Your foot's been kind of in, but it really hasn't been. As we learned last week, there is no spiritual Switzerland. There's no neutrality. Jesus said in the previous text, he who is not with me is oh, just neutral, trying to figure things out. No. Jesus said, who is not with me is what? Against me. So the right response, and that's what we're saying, how should we respond? The right response is to fall at the feet of the crucified, resurrected Lord and call him just that, Lord. Now, the closing section, I am not gonna dive into in any depth for sake of time and just bandwidth. Can't unpack verses 43 and 45, through 45, but let me give you a little bit, just a little bit on it. 
The historical background was this. We just mentioned Israel wild out, right? They went after other gods. God spanks them in love and puts them in, in, in exile. Do you remember that? Do they turn back to God? Yes or no? That's what we're all saying, right? In other words, they only partially turn back to God. In fact, out of the exile, they created this convoluted system. We've been talking about all these extra biblical laws that they had and all these yokes that they were putting on people. They created, they did a cut and paste religious syncretism kind of so-called reformation that, that, that obscured the very one their system was supposed to point them towards, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now that's the historical context, but what I wanted to see from this closing section before making two, two quick applications is this. There are some people who have some kind of religious experience, okay? The demon goes away. He's speaking metaphorically here, by the way, because he says evil generation, tying that up with what he said earlier. So he's not just talking about individuals, he's talking about macroscopically, but we're making some individual application. There are people who have some kind of religious experience, maybe even a Christian religious experience. Maybe even they pray the sinner's prayer. But they never truly turn to Christ for who he really is on his terms. And they have a little season of kind of flirting with the truth, you know, that kind of thing. And in the end, they're worse off than when they began. Because they... They, they might have dealt with a few things in their life. They might have had some kind of experience. But Jesus Christ truly never came into them by faith. And so the demon comes back with seven others. Metaphorically speaking, they're worse off than they began. Jesus said, so it will be, look at the last verse, with this evil generation. And again, that ties this story with what he just said, evil generation. So he says there are going to be people like that in every generation. I don't want that to be any of you people who flirt with the faith for just a time, and then you're gone. Whenever I preach at a Christian school, the first time I do it, I ask everyone to stand up, and then I have 70% sit down, and there's only 30% remaining. I said, according to recent statistics, probably long-term statistics, those will be the number of you who actually actively be following Christ in 5, 10, 15 years, whatever it is. In other words, a lot of flirting with Christ, but no falling at his feet as the risen Lord. This is a story of deconstruction. All deconstruction is is apostasy with some narcissism thrown in. Look at me. Don't be that person. He is arguing with you for your good out of his mercy. Now, here are the two closing applications. Number one, the most powerful instrument in the conversion of sinners is the word of God. It's not science. We should learn that from this story, right? Because they had a whole lot of them. It's not signs and wonders. God can do his thing, and we can be in awe when he does it, but that, that won't do it. A degree in apologetics won't do it. All the manuscript evidence, which, by the way, I'm kind of a, a, a side dork in that stuff. I think it's fascinating how much manuscript evidence there is. That won't do it, though. It's the word of God. And I, th- th- I say this on the basis of Jesus himself. Jesus told a story of a rich man and Lazarus. Remember that? Rich man goes Hades or hell. Lazarus, the poor man, goes to paradise or heaven. The rich man's in torment, asks for a single drop of water to cool, cool what he's, the, the heat. And then he says this. You remember this? He says, could you send somebody to warn my five brothers so they don't come to hell like I am? And what, what is the answer? They have Moses and they have the prophets. If they are not convinced by them, they won't even believe if one comes back from the dead. Do you see what he's doing here? The word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. The proclamation of of the gospel is the divinely appointed means, appointed means by which people are turned from darkness into light from the power of Satan to God himself. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for his salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's, that's the word of God. And one more verse here. 1 Corinthians. For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for Jews demand a sign. There it is, right? They demand a sign. Give us a sign. And Greeks seek wisdom. Show me how erudite you can be, how urbane, how cutting edge. Give me some philosophy. Jews demand a sign. Greeks seek wisdom. But what we do simply is this. This is all we do. This is all we got. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Is he the power of God for you? That's God's kindness in your life, baby. That's awesome. Is he the wisdom of God in your life? Is he your everything? That is because the word of God pierced your heart and brought forth life. That's application one. Application two. It's this. But Jesus is alive. But Jesus is alive is the ultimate answer to every objection to the Christian faith. That's a tall promise, but it's a true one. Now, what I'm not saying is, I'm not saying we should be simplistic in our discussion with people. I'm not. I'm not saying we should be evasive. I'm not saying that we shouldn't give secondary answers to very real objections and be kind and courteous and gracious and all that. And I'm, even, I'm not even saying we should give the ultimate answer every time, but Jesus is alive. I am just saying it is the ultimate answer to every objection. Here's a few objections people get. Well, Christians have hurt me and been hypocritical. You ever heard that objection? You ever felt that objection yourself? How should we respond? We should be sympathetic. We should lament with them. We should be kind and gracious. And then we should keep on talking to them and say, you know, that's unfortunate. Um, sometimes, by the way, people make that allegation we're simply called to account because of sin. Not every time, but sometimes. But then I would ask that person graciously, let me ask you, have you ever lived inconsistent with your ideals? Ever? You ever been hypocritical in your life? Ever? And then I'll say, you know, the Bible itself is very open about the warts and blemishes of those who follow God. You can just read that. They, they were, they're hypocrites. Oh, by the way, I am sometimes. Don't want to be. Not trying to give an excuse, but, but, but it happens. That's why we all need Jesus. But, but let me put that aside. Jesus is alive. Now, what are you going to do with that? He's alive. Hypocrites or not, he's alive. Another objection is this. I read online or I heard from my professor that they're missing books of the Bible. I would say, well, first of all, they were never missing. We've always known they're around. And never parts, they were never part of the Bible. And if we're doing a little inner dorkdom, I might even talk about the Council of Jamnia and some places like that. But ultimately, here's what I'm going to say. But Jesus is alive. What are you going to do with that? Or people... Well, if God is good, even real, why all the atrocities of humankind? That's a real objection, isn't it? You're not the first to wrestle with it, I share with people. It's called theodicy, theologians. It's so big, even giving it an expression, a term, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. And there are a lot of them. I, all I can say is there's a real fall. I can't exactly tell you why, tell you why, because the Bible doesn't explicitly say, I think it does give us some indications. But there was a real fall. What you're telling me just proves that there was a real fall. But I can tell you this. God cares about it. He stepped into it. And one day he's going to be putting an end to it. And the reason I can say that, oh, by the way, is because Jesus is alive. He's coming back. Now, what are you going to do with that? A fourth objection is this. I tried Jesus and it did not work. I tried Jesus and it did not work. How would you respond to that? I would say, well, first of all, what do you mean by tried? And then I would, second of all, ask, and what do you mean by did not work? And depending which way they went, I would say, by the way, sanctification, becoming like Jesus, is a lifelong, up and down, ebb and flow process. It is sometimes, frankly, a grind. But all that aside, Jesus is alive. What are you going to do with that? And one final objection is this. I prayed for something big, and God just did not come through. He didn't come through. To which I would say, I know the feeling. 
A lot of other believers do as well. God's ways are not our ways. We don't know the end of the story yet. And even in the Bible, people cry out and say, how long, Lord, or Lord, I don't understand what's going on. So it's okay, you can do that too. But at the end of the day, Jesus is alive. So what are you going to do with that? In a way, that's how Paul ends his sermon on Mars Hill and how I do finally bring this sermon to a close. Paul is at Mars Hill. Remember that? The marketplace, the Areopagus, if I'm saying it right. And he's doing just some outdoor preaching. And he's getting all kinds of questions, all kinds of questions. Well, but if, if, if. They even call him in the Greek, it's kind of funny, a seed picker. You're a seed picker. I guess that was really telling somebody something back then. And, and he ends that sermon by saying, the times of ignorance God winked at. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Well, how do you know? Whereas he has given proof to all men in that he raised Jesus from the dead. So Jesus is the Lamb of God risen to take away the sin of everyone who will trust in him. And he's also the lion you will stand before if you die in your sins. It's Jesus. The sermon ends, it says, some mocked resurrection from the dead. It's crazy how people say, oh, I don't believe in a resurrection. And they believe in all kind of manner of spirituality and reincarnation and new age stuff. You see, your problem is not dealing with, not believing in the supernatural. You just don't want to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. And there's great evidence for his resurrection. So some scoffed. Some said, hmm, 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 give me a lot to think about. I got more questions for you later. Uh, Let's just put this on pause. I'll just call those self-trusters, self-righteous. So you had scoffers, you had self-righteous, and then some believed. A woman named Dionys, someone named Damaris, and I'll just tell you, through the ages, millions of others who've come to embrace the slaughtered, resurrected Lamb of God who takes away the sin of each and every evil and adulterous heart who comes to him for forgiveness. So what are you going to be? You're going to be a scoffer? You're going to be a self-truster, a self-righteous person? Or are you going to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Father, would you have your way this morning?